friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. This week, as usual, we have a great show lined up for you. You know, with restrictions slowly coming back into place across the country and around the world because of new COVID spikes and many fearing another lockdown, we go to Catholic psychologist Dr. Kevin Vost about how best to combat the natural feelings of loneliness and exhaustion that this elicits in us. He's written extensively about loneliness and depression, and as families grapple with more time in isolation amid another COVID surge, he offers us some great advice. But first, we are blessed to have Damon Owens with us. He's an international speaker and evangelist for over 20 years. He's also the founder and executive director of Joy to Be, following four years as the first executive director of the Theology of the Body Institute in Philadelphia. He served as chairman of the 2016 International Theology of the Body Congress. And as we are in this year of St. Joseph, we invited Damon to join us with a look at fatherhood, the highs, the lows, the blessings, and the battles, and all that we can learn from our faith in deepening our relationship with our children. Damon is also a guru when it comes to the theology of the body, so we want to get info on that as well. Welcome to the show, Damon. Thank you. So good to be with you all. Well, it's really good of you to take the time. I know that you're a very busy man. You have a large family, not to mention (laughs) your ministry and all the wonderful work that you do. And it's, you know, part of the reason we thought of you is because of your large family. This is the year of St. Joseph, and you embrace your fatherhood with a lot of joy and a lot of peace. And that's how that's how we perceive it. And we wanted to have you tell us about that and transmit that to us uh, on Conversations with Consequences. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I'll share as, as openly as I always do. And it's really rooted in a, in a, in a reverence and a real awe of what I get to do and, and you know, sometimes how poorly I do it. <laughs> and yet the grace that happens, you know, in uh, any way is part of the God's great gift of the family. Damon, I think you and your ministry first really came onto my radar screen during the pandemic when so many mm. of us were sort of, you know, withdrawing and hunkering down in our little cocoons. But mm. I feel like you were everywhere online and you launched all kinds of online retreats for married couples and I I feel like I heard about you and your ministry from so many different circles of friends so can you describe to us some of these ministries and how you were able to kind of kick into high gear during the pandemic yeah it was interesting and we're still sort of parsing through what the shut-in and the pandemic has done ministry-wise but God gave my wife Melanie and I we married for 28 years and we have eight children seven girls and a boy I say all boys except the first seven and uh, <laughs> the uh, 
we, we have uh, two through adoption. And the work, I went into full-time ministry in 2002 after about eight years, part-time, still working engineering. And the ministry from the very beginning has always been focused on marriage, uh, family, parenting, natural family planning, and later on, again, adoption as it became a reality in our lives. And I think the pandemic really, uh, in God's timing, he had given us this vision of our current ministry, Joyful Ever After, really about uh, six weeks before the pandemic. Around January, I made the decision to leave and to, to form uh, Joyful Ever After as a very laser-focused approach to helping couples, as we say, get the marriage they want from the marriage that they have. And the timing, we literally incorporated on February 25th, and all the shut-ins happened You know, a couple of weeks later in March. We were kind of left like, Lord, what are you asking of us? Where we had very high touch, very high intimacy uh, friendships that we were encouraging between couples as w- to help couples to work out their salvation. So it looked like it fly in the face that well, now we're shut in. But what happened is you're talking about is uh, several other speakers who've been around for a while really saw that we couldn't let the shut in stop our ministry work and somehow we had to pivot. And I was part of a, you know, an honor to be part of a small group of, of speakers who really went immediately, and I mean like in March, as our on-site events, usually 50, 60, 70 speaking events a year, they all obviously were canceled, and we, the virtual Catholic conferences really started to take shape. So I was honored to be, as you said, all over the place, only because we were trying to figure out how can we continue to serve when we're shut in this way. And I do thank God that, you know, as these doors were closed, there were windows that were open, and now we've got couples and individuals and really a whole culture that's now open to learning in ways that was not popular before COVID. I'm talking about the the online events. Damon, you had to be very nimble to make that shift. And and it sounds like you made it very quickly. What was it mostly a question of shifting gears in your head? Or was it mostly a question of getting your arms around the IT difficulties and getting people on board with that kind of IT, which seemed very complicated at the beginning? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the the tech was part of it. But I think the bigger was, was what you said, was getting into being authentic to our ministry and not just doing events just for the sake of doing events, not to panic because literally all of our income and revenue goes to zero, but really saying, okay, Lord, we know you're in this. How do we continue to give this ministry that you gave us? How do we, you know, maybe is this a time to rest? Is this a time to pause? Is this a time to reflect or is this a time to, to reach people in ways that we couldn't reach before? We were asking really fundamental questions and really the harder part was what is the authentic way that we can communicate uh, building intimacy between couples within marriages and families, how can we build intimacy at a time where now we're physically separated? And I remember I remember the first month, we were immediately saying, you know, we, we couldn't stand, I hated that word, that phrase, social distancing. <laughs> yes. You know, my theology, theology, the body background, my TOB just said, oh, that is bad anthropology. <laughs> There's no social distancing. And, and to be precise, it was about physical distancing, right? It's about it's about the, the, the separation based on the virus, but a social separation really just, we knew that that could not sustain because it's it's against the nature of our, of our humanity. So we looked at these virtual events as ways of continuing some level of engagement. Praise be to God, and the numbers of people that responded were amazing. Our marriage summit, we had 38,000 couples 
registered for the Catholic Marriage Summit 2020, which the content is still available. I was part of a Theology of the Body a virtual conference, and they had 80,000 people registered. These are not numbers that, you know, in 20 years, 25 years of ministry, you don't get those kind of numbers in the Catholic space. So, you know, God is God is uh, is still calling us to, to connect. That's right. And speaking of social distancing or not social distancing, I think a lot of people thought we might have a bit of a baby boom with everybody, you know, shut up at mm-hmm. home with their families. But of course, the opposite tragically has happened. Mm-hmm. It's been a bit of a baby bust. And we already had declining fertility rates in our country. And now that trend is accelerated. So how do you convey to people the joy of parenthood, of fatherhood, of the joys of a large family? What are some of your messages to people that are not otherwise inclined in this direction? Yeah, to be fair, over the years, we have focused directly on that issue uh, with the promotion of natural family planning, with the work that Melanie had done with adoption and just opening and telling stories, telling the story of, of the authentically, you know, what is what was the fears? How were those fears addressed? You know, what were the joys? What were the unexpected graces? And really just sort of putting a, a, a normalized human relatable connection, a face to each of those difficult issues. But I got to tell you, with Joyful Ever After, we've kind of gone in the other direction and said, you know, how do we strengthen the joy within marriage that allows the joy to drive that kind of fruitfulness? And the, the laser focus from the prior ministry, Joy TOB, uh, for marriage to, to family, now gave way to Joyful Ever After, which really is focusing on helping couples to, to really focus on their marriages. You know, one of the things related to fertility and related to uh, intimacy, there were some statistics that said, you know, self-professed Catholic couples report one out of four reported during COVID additional stress and strain in their marriage to the point of, you know, considering separation, real marital distress. So the sexual intimacy that, you know, would give rise to a, you know, fertility boom, really at the heart of it was the trauma and the, the drama that was happening with couples whose schedules were disrupted, who were able to keep active during quote unquote normal times and avoid some of the deeper, more intimate, difficult conversations about about their marriage and their relationship now shut in were face to face. And <laughs> and these things can if, if we're not used and don't have the skills to address these issues, there's a lot of strife, there's a lot of drama, there's a lot of wounds and pain within these marriages. Damon, did you say only one in four? Well, it, it increased, so one out of four saying, and that's a huge number of, who were saying that the pandemic, it's the shut-in itself, has directly caused uh, strife within their marriages. I would have thought it was much higher, from my personal experience, Damon. <laughs> It could be. It very well could be. I mean, these surveys, I think we were shocked to see. I mean, there's always a, there's a certain level of distress in marriage that we deal with. That's why we're in ministry. But directly related to the shut-in, and again, these were active practicing Catholics, not general population. That, that's just what really caught my attention. For In our home, the problem was suddenly, well, I mean, I've looked back at it because my husband and I are both very practicing Catholics, and, and we did have a lot of trouble adjusting to being home all the time together. And I think a lot of it was simply that each of us had had all our habits disrupted all at once. I kept thinking that, you know, human beings are such creatures of habit that as soon as things aren't clicking along the way we're used to, we get very distressed inside and we react badly. We 
we get anxious and and we don't know what to do with ourselves. Do you think that that was a large part of that? Yeah, I do. I do, and I think especially during that March April time yes, frame, March when April was new, and, and then school year. If you had kids in school, I mean, in homeschool. I mean, it just changed everything. But the enduring piece of that, I think, was wrapped up in all of the the habits were coping mechanisms, mm-hmm. were coping things That's that, right. that kept us from really entering into, you know, crucial conversations to doing the work of our marriage. And the, and the tyranny of the immediate is what Pope Benedict used to call, you know, the talk about the dictatorship of relativism. He also talked about the tyranny of the immediate. And we get so active in so many urgent things that in those habits, some of them are just the routine and the disruption. But the other part is we've got crutches. We've got things that keep us from, from doing the harder work. And now when those are gone... Uh, it's really, really hard to just jump right into these intimacy building needs if you don't have the skills. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and my co-hostess is on with me. Her name is Maureen Ferguson. We're talking to Damon Owens. He's an international speaker and evangelist for over 20 years and founder and executive director of Joy to Be and also Joyful Ever After, which is a relatively new project. He's telling us about a new ministry that has already been very, very successful. I like what you're saying, Damon, about the way that some of our our habits, our, our ways of leading our life become crutches in order to avoid real intimacy with our spouses. I definitely see that very actively. And even in my marriage and in marriages around me, I see um, the man who goes and plays golf, you know, all day Saturday, for instance, it's, sometimes it seems to me an escape, right, from that kind of intimacy that, that you could be fostering at home, but it's maybe a lot of trouble. Yeah, anything. This is the thing. And literally anything can be used as a, as a crutch. It could be food. It could be quiet. It could be music. You know, all things that, that are either neutral or even good. You know, we can use these things because it's not that they're bad that we do them. Golf is golf can be great. I'm not a golfer, but it can be great. But the real issue is, do we golf instead of being able to hold the game? of our wife, mm-hmm. the gaze of our husband, to sit in and say, I'm really hurt by what you said to me. And, you know, this this, this is what I heard when you when you say this. I, how, how did you expect me to respond to this, honestly, when you say it this way? The real conflict, I'm, I'm talking very, very personal conflict. And this is where we start getting to things like my friend, Dr. Bob Schutz, down at the John Paul II Healing Center, talks about the anatomy of a wound, the anatomy of a wound, and that there's a trauma there's a belief that we assign to that trauma. And then there is a, a vow that we make to make sure that the trauma never happens again. And then we bury it so deep into our emotional brain that we don't even think it through. It, it becomes a reaction. And we build these up from the moment we're, we're young all the way through our marriages. And we're almost on autopilot when it comes to these emotional responses. And now when the husband and the wife start living together and it is conflict and the conflict is not bad. The conflict is, is literally the purification that God wants for us as we work out our holiness. But we use things like golf and food and quiet and noise to avoid that hard work of unpacking these personal wounds that the person you pledge your life to is here to help you work out. This is what God has created with this, this crazy idea of marriage, this crazy reality that's built into our bones and our body and our psyche. It's built into our spirit, our spiritual soul, that the union of persons creates a, a reality that cannot exist 
exist in isolation. Two becoming one flesh creates a, a third that could never exist without the other. It's, it's, it's divine. And yet if we break away from the communion for an isolation, we cannot have communion. So it really becomes an either or instead of a both and. You know, Damon, you talk about how marriage is such a crazy project in so many ways to yes. tie yourself to this person who in many ways you kind of hardly even know really and to tie that person to you for life you know to be tied together for life and I have a son who's engaged and it's so beautiful to see this you know beautiful pure love between him and his fiance they're both 22 years old but at the same time I sort of think back to how little my husband and I really knew each other and just how (laughs) I think God sort of sprinkles this you know young love of pixie dust because why else would we kind of jump off a cliff together for the rest of our lives but circling back to the baby bust that we're experiencing in our culture today. And this, it's really a rejection of life and of love that people are refusing children. And my husband and I do marriage preparation talks, and we actually do the natural family planning talk. So I'm wondering how you try to reach young couples on this particular area of encouraging them about the joys of parenthood. Yeah, I have so much in common. I mean, we, we're, we're literally right now with my oldest daughter who's expecting, uh, been married a year and a half and expecting our first grandchild. And the same thing is watching them in their young love at, at such a maturity, the way they communicate to each other. Even that becomes uh, life building for Melanie and me as the parents. And I think that is part of the question, the equation of what in this generation is uh, an impediment? What's keeping them from seeing the, the gift of having children as opposed to just the burden? Why is there the, the lack of joy and support? And I think the, the answer, there's lots of different answers, to be honest with you, but most of them are basically can be under the, the umbrella of the culture, the cultural understanding of marriage, of the human person. There are competing theologies. There are competing anthropologies, the meaning of the man. There are competing uh, definitions of marriage, as we've seen, you know, legally since uh, 2015. So what we've got here is an idea of couples coming together that really have to make a choice. They have to deliberately choose to understand themselves through the lens of God and his church, or to start compromising with the culture's understanding of who they are. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What is marriage? Why would I choose marriage? And if I choose marriage, am I choosing it for the reasons that God created it? Or am I choosing it for the reasons that the culture will accept it? So as much as people want to deny it, we are we are still in a cultural battle here for the minds and the hearts of, of the next generation. And the mm-hmm. couples that you and I see in marriage preparation, these are couples that are still coming to the church for marriage. And they're still letting their love do crazy things like pledge themselves to each other for the rest of their lives because it's it's still accepted by the culture. But in order to have a lifelong, joy-filled marriage, the fullness of it, we simply cannot compromise with the culture. The culture itself is, is driving us to such an irreconcilable understanding of who we are as persons that it's not compatible. It is utterly incompatible with what it takes to build marriage. And that's that's sort of the conversion that with Joyful Ever After, we want to get to the hearts and minds of these couples, not through ideas and concepts that do need to be taught. Catechesis is huge, but their hearts have not been grabbed. They're not part of a, a community of friends where the culture among 
that friendship is driving them to go deeper and deeper into God's plan for joyful marriage. So the heart of Joyful Ever After and our approach is very much building these quads, you know, three, four couples who journey together in intentional friendship and confidence so that you're not isolated, you're not alone, you're not having to search out to find someone who is, you know, a peer, who's someone who is older than you, married longer, who can who can teach you through word and deed, or younger couples, where now you can, even as a young, young couple, can be in the position of teaching. So the teaching and learning is this breathing, like inhaling and exhaling, and you can't have one without the other. So we have to make real cultural headway by deliberately and intentionally building the culture that allows marriage and couples to flourish. Mm. And I think that mentoring of older couples and younger couples, I think that is so important. It's been so helpful to me to have couples who are, you know, just a little bit older than us. Their kids are older than ours to um, just to help guide us. You know, even sort of getting to the problem and why do young people have, why is it such a challenge to have a mentality of openness to life? And I've noticed that even in our Catholic cultures, sometimes the language which is problematic. Like, I don't even like the term natural family planning because I feel like that plays into the problem that we have to have control over all of these things. And, you know, I think the the new term fertility awareness is probably a better term. You know, we always make the point in our, it's still called the natural family planning talk, but we always make the point that, you know what, you don't have to plan out your life. Sometimes the best things in life are surprises, you know, and I think in our culture, everything is planned and scheduled and and it's that sense of control and so the bigger picture that it sounds like you're talking about of you can trust in God for these things and anyway what, what yeah. do you think about that yeah no I think you're on and we have such a great great conversation we're, we're of the same mind here and I think here's the challenge too is that what natural family planning in and of itself is a culture shock to the couples so we have to keep keep our, our reverence and honor that the idea that the body is ordered and that you can understand how how the body works and how that your joint fertility as a husband and a wife, that there really is only a 12 to 24 hour period where, where conception can occur over every menstrual cycle. And you can understand the bounds of when that fertile window begins and the five to seven days of when that fertile window ends. So that whole idea, that whole, which is natural to us in terms of understanding, is radically opposed to a culture of real fundamental control. So I think there's something that's built into natural family planning that, that may sound what's off-putting to us in the culture is actually the one thing that's attractive to them to get them out of the other culture. And the, the other issue is that once we're yeah, learning, point. you know, the lear- when we're learning natural family planning, you know how hard it is at the beginning because you're thinking, I've got to have more control. I have no control. I'm sitting here waiting for some sign and symptom to show up on this chart and, and, and maybe it doesn't happen. Maybe it does. It's that wrestling of the heart that says, no, I am actually not in control, but I am not more than an observer. I am a steward of this sexual power. And how do I regain good stewardship. First of all, you can't do it without knowledge. And what you can't know, you can't live. And you've got to live it with a certain piece. It's a school. It very much is a school that, that natural family planning can do. The question is, how do we appeal to the, the, the more contraceptive culture that seeks to fully control fertility and love and marriage and eternity, all these things? That's a lie by giving these, these couples an exposure and an encounter with trust with knowledge that says this is how God created you and this is what he's asking you to do with this power and it's more than just a course 
It's more than just choosing to achieve or postpone. It has to be part of a, a culture where you learn from the older couples. Like, hey, just relax, just relax. God's in control here. And you're able to look at a younger couple and say, man, we had the same angst that you have, and here's what we've learned. And to be with a peer and, and to say, are we the only ones crazy? Are we seeing this? So that whole cultural building is the formation of persons that, again, Pope Benedict speaks about, that John Paul II wrote the entire theology of the body to remind us of, but we still need something very practical, a praxis, a practice, and natural family planning allows that within, you know, this kind of strong culture. So I agree with you, but I think we have some powerful tools here to, to convert and to awaken young couples. Earlier, Damon, you said something that struck me very much. You said that joy leads to children, that it's the joy yeah. in marriage that allows uh, families to be generous when it comes to children. And, yeah. and, and I think it ties in with what you're saying, that it allows us, when we're joyful in our marriages, to accept these surprising children sometimes as joyful additions to a joyful household. I can just unpack that because that is so, it just delights me to talk about this because you have to understand joy. And I really love your listeners to, to acknowledge we're not talking merely happiness or circumstances mm -hmm. or occasion. That's beautiful. That's emotional. It's utterly dependent on situation. When you and I are talking about joy, we're talking about something on a whole other level. Joy is relational. So the joy of marriage is about deepening our relationship with one another and our couple relationship with God. So the deepening of the relationship is what brings the joy. Joy is the fruit of love. So the reason that we can be joyful about children is because we have deepened our trust that our marriages are under the aegis of love, of God himself. So why would we be afraid? Why would we be fearful about, you know, being able to, to raise our children for 18 years and whatever millions of dollars the culture says each child costs? All that stuff is, is building up fear, and fear comes from separation and isolation, whereas joy is the fruit of love and communion. So we're dealing with the reality that says when we are deeply connected with God, fear and faith cannot exist in the body at the same time. And that's why we say we want more love, we want more joy, we want more. We, Lord, we trust you. And, and that's, that's the connection that we have to restore. Damon, just briefly, we only have a minute left, but you're a proud mm -hmm. father of eight children, as we've noted, and Father's Day is coming towards us. Can you briefly share with us what might be some practical advice for parents and fathers in particular that may be struggling to be their children's spiritual father as well as their dads? Yeah, I just know you are not alone. I'm struggling with this even as I'm learning and teaching and growing and you know my delight in my children gets gets muted by my frustration with them and, and just irritation and all the, the things that, that are still in me that, that want to draw in so I encourage my, my men my fathers my husbands uh, to persevere that it's worth pressing through that you will not be laid empty by giving more and more and there are, we need each other we need encouragement from one another to be able to to lift us up when we're when we're down and we feel like we can't give anymore really get at the get at the areas that really really irritate us the most and for me it's i found that simple powerful truth of affection of just putting a hand on my daughter of just randomly grabbing and hugging or giving a kiss you know things that i didn't grow up with in particular and they're not super hard and painful i just don't think about them but being very intentional about you know, affection and, and and the touching is such a peacemaker it, it calms you and it, it draws into uh draws your, your children into you so just 
persevere and look for good community. Damon, it's such a delight to talk to you. The truths that you say, with, with they're so convincing and they're really hopeful, hopeful for all of us that are married or hoping to be married or watching our children get married and how much joy that that will bring us. So thank you, uh, Damon. Can you tell our listeners how they can learn more about your ministry? I'd be honored. Joyful Ever After. Joyfuleverafter.org is our organization. You can also just go to gotjoy, G-O-T-J-O-Y, gotjoy.org. We've got some exciting things coming up this summer and I'd love to share with you listeners. Thank you so much, Damon. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and now we're joined by Dr. Kevin Vost. He's a Catholic author, speaker, professor, and radio host. He's a guru on loneliness, and so many of us fearing, again, the social isolation and loneliness that comes with these lockdowns associated with the pandemic. We are turning to him for some sage advice on how we can help our families and ourselves cope with these difficulties with great charity and love for others. Welcome to the show, Dr. Vost. Ah, pleased to be with you. We're now halfway through, more than halfway through 2021. We were sort of certain that it was going to be a great year. We were going to go back to normal. The children were going to be in school and we would have this whole pandemic thing behind us. But it hasn't turned out that way. And those were my sentiments exactly. And myself and my wife and so many people were no. We had the same higher hopes for 2021. But even at this point, yes, yeah, some things haven't changed, seem to maybe be reverting. A friend just told me this morning his European vacation has been canceled. So, so yes, it appears that uh, epidemic, these restrictions are going along a lot longer longer than many of us anticipate. And this has created a, a big reserve um, in people's hearts and people's minds of loneliness, just lack of human connection, lack of routine. Everything's been disrupted. And this is very hard for human beings. Oh, oh, absolutely. I wrote a book, The Catholic Guide to Loneliness, that came out in 2017. You know, and of course, this is years before all these shutdowns and things started happening. So really, we've had a phenomenon of growing loneliness for decades now that have kind of had researchers up in a talking about an upcoming epidemic of loneliness. And again, this is even before COVID hit. So it has compounded the problem. Loneliness, you know, is more prevalent than ever, affecting people from virtually every portion of the lifespan, from, from young children to the elderly. Before the pandemic, what are some things that were leading us down this path uh, of loneliness? I mean, I can think of a couple in the top of my head, the, the way the family has been fractured, that lack of closeness with, with the natural habitat of the human, which is the family, and also maybe time spent in front of our screens. A lot of young people don't make human connections. They make a lot of online connections instead. But besides those two, which I think seem very obvious, what other what other things lead us down the loneliness path? Yeah, that's a great question. Of course, you're right on target with those two. But if I could, some researchers talk about two basic fundamental categories of loneliness, which I kind of like. One is a more intimate emotional sense of isolation, where you don't feel like you have that that close confidant, that person you can confide in. So you feel like emotionally isolated, which, which many people have. There's there's also a somewhat broader dimension of loneliness, a more broader social isolation, where maybe you do have some confidence, but but you don't feel like you fit in, you know, in the workplace, maybe, or at school or or in your parish. So I think both of these forms of, of loneliness, you know, have been growing in recent times, worsened by the, the restrictions. But to go back in historical perspective, a book came out in the year 2000 called Bowling Alone, and it kind of talked about that broader social loneliness, where we're not connecting, we're not joining groups like we used to, we're not doing things together like we used to. Uh, and one of the factors they zoomed in then was the television watching. They had all kinds of 
statistics on not that watching any TV was bad, but that people who watched it excessively or who had televisions in every room of their house, it was likely to impact their family interactions, their interactions with others. And at the end of that book in 2000, the author says, but watch out, there's something new on the horizon here. This was the growth of the internet and social media, which is which is also so powerful now and it has grown in leaps and bounds. You know, and there's some ways too that, as you said, that, that screen time, it's become a very, very powerful two-edged sword. There are some good things that can come from, you know, our virtual connections, but there's also some real hazards there that seem to be feeding the uh, uh, experience of loneliness. Do you think that young people growing up in these in these lonely times, and I don't even mean the pandemic, but before that, do you think that, that they are uh, falling prey to this in, in ways that maybe we're not even uh, able to assess? Uh, I, yes, yes, I, I do believe that is the case. Because some, you know, because often people will think of the lonely as like the elderly, maybe someone who's lost a spouse after so many years. And that's, you know, that's real and that's true, or a person who's isolated in a, in a nursing home. But some of our, you know, studies in recent years have pointed to high loneliness amongst young adults and among children and adolescents. And, and again, that, that screen time thing is not just to say like, yeah, because our young people are spending all their time on the screen, they're not out playing with each other. Well, that's a part of it. But, but again, it affects all the lifespan. And sometimes our young children might feel isolated because their parents are immersed in the phone or immersed in the social media. So it is a phenomenon that can impact us at all ages. It's something we really need to be aware about as we try to increase as much as is possible, as much as is allowed, you know, more intimate face-to-face contacts with each other. Kevin, I'm a Hispanic and in our culture, we have a lot of intimate closeness with a lot of people mm-hmm. um, that we we foster, we create it, and we, we revel in it. And it, it's our what makes us feel alive and human. And then that it's a culture shock sometimes coming here to the United States, a more a more Protestant uh, culture, more um, more what's the word, <laughs> more maybe more English, stiff upper lip. People are very keen on their independence, and and it seems to me as as a Hispanic that in order to be be so connected you have to be very dependent and maybe we trade off this idea of independence where well we're very independent we're self-sufficient but what we end up with is disconnectedness and loneliness i think you're precisely right and some researchers have even picked up on this ethic that some protestants have and even like the idea that you focus on your relationship between you and jesus which is of course very very important and powerful but jesus you know told us to love our neighbors so we do need this sense of connectedness we do need strong ties to our family and to our church just as jesus would have us do and in in the United States, that does really seem to be contributing, you know, being overly individualistic. It does seem to be contributing to loneliness, because if I could, there's a, a very powerful study that, that came out years ago now, but at the University of Chicago, here in the United States, they did a survey of adults of various ages, and at that time, they asked them about their close confidants, people who they felt they could tell important things to, you know, recall in an emergency. In 1985, when this study was first started, they said one person out of ten said they had nobody they could turn to, which, which is a sad thing. When it was followed up 20 years later, it had now become one out of four people. So one quarter wow, of the population felt they had no... Absolutely tragic. And even the, the researchers themselves said they were shocked to find this. So th- this is a growing trend that, you know, probably, yes, probably more so in our standard American culture than in some cultures that, uh, you know, have been known for intrinsically valuing the power of those relationships, which which indeed, you know, are so powerful. The problem with that is that those relationships come with responsibilities and the responsibilities are huge. <laughs> and sometimes they're very, they take over your life over and over again. Maybe loneliness also comes from wanting to 
to turn away from responsibility, not having that responsibility for other people's needs. Oh, I think that's an excellent point that sometimes people look at this in the context of, this is like before the lockdowns. Yes. Part of the reason we're lonely is we're so darn busy. You know, we're, we're taking on all these responsibilities and doing all these things. And we realize, hey, I haven't reached out to my friend in six months now. Well, maybe I will. Oh, no, they might think I don't care about anymore. They might reject me, so I'm not going to. So that can be a component. Our, if our lives get overly full, too many activities, we may not set a time, a side time, you know, for those relationships that really count. And then if we if we get that aha, that insight, we might be afraid to reestablish them. And then the pandemic comes along and puts all of this on steroids. Exactly. All kinds of new phenomena there. Now we're, we're all isolated to some extent. And if you, you think, boy, I would like to reach out, there may be some real cases where you can't, at least the way you, you used to. But, but I will say there, we do need to just be very, very mindful, especially as Catholics, that, you know, one thing I say in the book, if you're lonely, you are not alone. You know, there's a vast number of people, lonely people out there, though most people won't admit it. So we need to kind of, kind of keep our eyes and ears open for the lonely people who are very likely around us by doing just simple kind deeds, acknowledging a stranger in the elevator, doing those little things can make a real world of difference to a person who may be very lonely and may feel like they don't exist in other people's eyes. Do you think that the pandemic, maybe we didn't react quickly enough as, as to how we could help each other through our loneliness? And of course, how, who can blame us? This was a <laughs> an unprecedented situation for all of us. Uh, you know, I, I do think so. You know, yeah, this is brand new, brand new territory. I'm getting old. I'm 60. I, of course, have never seen anything quite like this. But yeah, we were trying to grapple with this brand new question. And you know, maybe in some ways there were significant overreactions. You know, all the clu- uh, schools closing down and so forth. And then later we're finding that, that some of the negative mental health effects that come from that. But I did notice too that there, some studies came out You know, within the first year, lots of studies did on the impacts of isolation. So there is an awareness there. We need to watch out for these unattended consequences and, and side effects. So I know there is a growing awareness, at least in the you know the psychological, the psychiatric, the, the social science research fields that, that these social implications of our policies are extremely important and should not be ignored. I've been thinking a lot about loneliness when I read uh, stories of countries that are in severe lockdowns, now lasting many months, going into a year and a half or two years, countries like Australia. How do you think people are managing in countries like that where where they're being atomized and fragmented? Yeah, I mean, of course, the, the likelihood is that there's going to be significant problems. Like there was a recent review of studies by the American Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Psychiatry that was showing you know, when these lockdowns are extended or social isolation is extended, young children become much more likely to develop depression later on. There can be lasting impact. So people do need to have to be to be aware of the potential negative uh, impacts of this isolation and to try to do things to counteract it, to have as much contact as is you know lawfully permitted. There's also, you know, of course, as Catholics, we know that sometimes uh, good things come out of bad. You know, God is so powerful that, that evil exists because even good can come from it. So I think, too, we need to look at potential positives that can come from where the world is going through now make us more aware of the lonely make us more uh, thoughtful of ways we can still reach out or when some of the restrictions are done how we can form tighter bonds and i will just note since you mentioned other countries i came across a study from norway uh, it said a, a subset of the, the lonely people there who were very isolated some of those actually said their loneliness was a little bit less severe now because so many other people were now in their own position so it was almost like you know they didn't feel so stigmatized so strange mm-hmm. about about feeling isolated. So, you know, we kind of need to look for those silver linings or, or possibly if we can't reach out like we want to, try to reap the benefits that we can from from limited solitude, you know, growing in our prayer life with God. So that's one thing I think to keep in mind, even if there are objectively very difficult uh, circumstances we need to cope with, we need to find ways to, 
to ask God for His help to help us grow stronger through these uh, difficulties. How does God help us through loneliness? How can we turn to Him and and get us through the, these times? Yeah, you know, and God is there for us. You know, and you know, Jesus told us, you know, the main thing we're to do we're to love God with all our heart, and we're also to do to show that love to express it by loving our neighbors as ourselves. And I know a lot of this research. For the, for the lonely says it can be hard for them because if you're lonely for a long time, it can kind of disturb the way you think about things, lower your expectations, make you harder on yourself and others. So they say the best thing the lonely can do is to reach out to others, even if it's difficult. So suggestions I make there is the lonely might want to consider reaching out to other lonely people. And those of us who might, may or may not be experiencing loneliness, you know, we're then just called out to reach out to others. We don't know for sure, you know, if that person we're coming across is lonely or not. So it always seemed like we recognize that others exist that were willing to, to acknowledge their presence, to do those little things. I did see on some, it was a UK website, they gave 25 little random acts of kindness you can do to help alleviate loneliness. And I like that because I ended my book with uh, 30 ways to help lighten your neighbor's load of loneliness. And those are those simple things. And the human animal is a social animal and we don't do well when we find ourselves alone all day. It must be so prevalent right now. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I didn't come up with this. I've heard this from others, but it, I agree that it's, it, to me, it's an in a way, it's too bad that we've called this social distancing instead of physical distancing. You're so yeah, right. We need to keep the physical space from each other in certain circumstances, but we should never break those social bonds. We should find other ways of, of keeping closer, growing closer socially. One thing I've noticed during the pandemic that's been, it's been hard on families keeping close is a different appreciation of risk, different ways of approaching things as, as the months have gone by and the, the recommendations keep changing. In my family, for instance, in our extended family, my husband's family and ours, there's been a lot of different people doing it differently. It's hard to meld those things. Do you have any advice for families that are trying to get all those different viewpoints working together? Uh, yes, and that's a great question. But, and believe me, that happens in our family too. The family says, okay, we're going to cancel our Thanksgiving dinner this year or, or we're going to have it, but everybody one needs to be wearing masks where other family members might say you know forget that i've had my vaccine you know i, I or if they have you know or, exactly. or i'm willing to take the risk <laughs> and so on so yeah that, that is very very real i would say my first general piece of advice there might be keep in mind especially as christians giving each other the benefit of a doubt that where a person stands on the spectrum you know of uh, almost ignoring it or just obsessing with with the covid we need to remember that in some way that approach makes sense to that person so so not to demonize them or be, be angry with them to understand okay that's the way they see it i see it differently can we find some common ground to get together in some way or to decide that we're going to postpone it but so that's my basic advice remember that somehow their approach makes sense to them. So so we want to be, you know, forgiving and, and compromising as much as we can. So lots of charity. Lots of charity with our neighbor. Absolutely. That that sums it up. That That's where all those the good deeds, everything flows from, is that, that love of God, that love of neighbor as ourself. Another thing, another phenomenon I've been observing, my, my youngest children are teenagers, and I've noticed a lot of boys, especially teenage boys, preteen boys, spending way too much time online. It, it got really bad during during the lockdowns when they weren't going to school, and they're having trouble emerging. And, and I know that their parents are worried about loneliness for them, social loneliness, uh, being distant from friends, and not making those those normal connections that they, that they need to make as they grow into adulthood. What, what advice would you give for parents who are watching their children or grandchildren struggle like that? Yeah, I would say, you know, that, uh, you know, social media, you know, can have its positive effects, of course. There's ways of making some ties. I know some kids will even play games across the internet, even with children, with kids in other countries and things. So it can have positive things, but but you, you definitely don't want it to supplant the more intimate uh, context. So so if you're in a parental situation, you may want to set up some, some reasonable time limits. I, I came across one study today from the UK where it said that 
35% of young people said they feel lonely often or most of the time, despite spending three hours a day on social media. Hmm. So that social media, is, it's not going to do it. We need to set some limits there, encourage those interactions. And I'll say too, maybe one general principle that, that we can see over time too with this technology is, you know, we used to be more likely to meet people face to face. Then we developed the ability to call each other on, on the phone. And when cell phones came about, that made it very, very easy because now we all carry a phone. It's not just one somewhere in the household somewhere. But as time went on, especially with young people, we then moved into to texting, you know, so so it's kind of like even less personal. Now you, now you don't hear that person's voice. So I'd almost encourage as much as possible to kind of move back that ladder. If you're going to text, consider doing a call. If you're going to call, is, is there a possibility of actually seeing that person? So move it, move back as much as you can towards the, the human and away from the digital, oh, if, exactly. if at all possible. Exactly. Well, yes. thank you. Well, Dr. Vos, it's been so good to talk to you about loneliness. I hope and I pray that we'll have less of it <laughs> going forward, mm-hmm. that the pandemic will, will ease up again and we can resume all our normal interactions. But in the, me- in the meantime, our listeners might want to pick up A Catholic Guide to Loneliness. And where else can they read about your work, Dr. Vost? Well, my website is drvost.com, just D-R-V-O-S-T.com, and it includes a comment box. And if anyone would want to contact me, I'll be happy to reply. And I want to thank you too, Dr. Christie. I've enjoyed our, our conversation, and my hopes and prayers are are with you that, that God helps us uh, battle and combat not only the epidemic of, of the virus, but of loneliness. Thank you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when we'll eavesdrop and participate in perhaps the most pivotal dialogue in the whole gospel, when Jesus asks his disciples two questions, who do people say that I am, and who do you say that I am? In response to that first question, the poll of what others were saying, the disciples were eager to respond. They informed Jesus that the people were numbering him among the greatest Jewish heroes of all time, like the prophets Elijah and Jeremiah, and more recently John the Baptist. But Jesus didn't stop there. First, because it wasn't enough to rest on what surveys said, to rely on what others believe, despite the exalted circles into which people were placing Jesus. Second, because the assessments weren't true. Jesus was far greater than Elijah, Jeremiah, and John. He was greater than Abraham, Moses, David, and Solomon. Third, because Jesus didn't want those with him merely to remain fans or admirers of him, because that would not set them on the path in which he had come into the world to lead. And so we ask the second question, who do you say that I am? At this point, all but one of the disciples remained mute. It was easy to communicate what the crowds were saying, But to put oneself on the line to make a personal public confession required courage and conviction. Simon Peter, however, put into the deep. God the Father had led him to recognize that Jesus was indeed far greater even than what the others were saying. And he had the guts to be the first to say it. You are the Christ, he said. Christ, the Greek word for Messiah, communicated that Jesus was the long-awaited one foretold by all the prophets. 
St. Matthew's version of the scene, he recalls Peter's also confessing Jesus to be more than the Messiah, but the very own Son of God. To make that admission was to bring into the foreground a whole series of expectations. The Messiah was to be the one who would bring back the kingdom of David, who would kick out all foreign powers, who would return Israel to prominence. And as we see in other parts of the gospel, Jesus' closest followers were all ambitiously hoping to receive choice positions in Jesus' messianic administration. That's why as soon as Peter enunciated Jesus' true identity, Jesus began to teach them what type of Messiah he would be, how he would inaugurate his kingdom, and how they were to share in it and announce it. It blew their minds. Rather than uniting the Jews and defeating and expelling the Romans, rather than leading the twelve tribes to triumph, Jesus would instead suffer greatly, be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and be killed. Jesus told all of them this, openly, St. Mark tells us, so that they would know it clearly. To get a sense of what their shock would have been like, it would be as if someone had just won the U.S. presidential election and in his victory speech said that rather than lead his supporters in the country to greatness, he would instead be seized by the members of his party in collaboration with the opposing party and various foreign powers, be humiliated, tortured, and finally hung from the Washington Monument. But Peter, emboldened by his previous affirmation and obviously desiring not only to be the principal advisor of the new Messiah, but his bodyguard, took Jesus aside and St. Mark tells us began to rebuke him. God forbid anything like this should ever happen to you, he said, according to St. Matthew's eyewitness account. He couldn't fathom that a Messiah would be rejected and killed rather than conquer. It was totally incompatible with Jewish messianic expectations for the long-awaited one to suffer this way. But Jesus wanted to help him and all the apostles recognize that, yes, he was the Messiah, but his kingdom and the liberation he was bringing were different than what they were expecting. He tells Peter not, get away from me, but get behind me. Jesus wasn't ridding himself of Peter, but he was pointing out what Peter had been trying to do, to lead the Lord rather than to follow him. To tell Peter to get behind him was to make him a disciple rather than a roadblock. Jesus also told him the reason why Peter was behaving like an obstacle. You're thinking, not as God does, but as human beings do. Peter was seeing only with human eyes, from human political hope, rather than with the eyes of faith, the eyes that God seeks to give us. Peter at first saw what the crowds didn't, that Jesus wasn't just one of the prophets of old. But Jesus was helping him to see the type of Messiah he really was, rather than the one Peter imagined so that Peter and all of us would be able to confess Jesus in far greater depth. So Jesus continued the consequential conversation by calling the disciples together and telling them that not only would he suffer, but if they sought to remain with him, they must suffer too. Whoever wishes to come after me, Jesus said, whoever wants to share in my kingdom and reign with me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. As if that's not challenging enough, he adds, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and that of the gospel will save it. To use the analogy given before, Jesus was saying that anyone who wanted to support him would have to say no to worldly ambition, pick up his own noose, and follow him to the Washington Monument. Let's bring the conversation around. 
Jesus asks each of us individually and constantly what he asked his first followers. Who do you say that I am? It's not enough for us to rest on what other people say, what the catechism teaches, and what the Pope or the bishops or our parents, grandparents, and godparents have said. All of this is helpful, but it's not sufficient. We must make a consequential admission to state clearly who Jesus is and conform our life to that truth, getting behind him, thinking as he thinks, denying ourselves, picking up our own cross daily and following him. It's obvious that this is very challenging because just like at Jesus' time, these commands go against worldly ways. Rather than affirming ourselves, Christ calls us to deny ourselves. Rather than fleeing from suffering, Christ tells us to seize the cross and die out of love for God and others. Rather than doing our own thing, he tells us to follow him. Rather than seeking to save our life by our own wits, he tells us that the only way to save it is to lose it in loving service of God and others, perhaps even to the point of death. We live in a self-affirming age and Jesus calls us to self-denial so that we might have self-mastery and be capable of self-gift. We live in a hedonistic age that's addicted to pleasure and phobic about pain and Jesus calls us to take up or seize rather than just reluctantly accept the cross, the instrument on which we will die to ourselves so that he in turn may live. Then he calls us to follow him as he gives his life for other salvation, as he washes other people's feet and as he calls us to love others as he has loved us first. He asks, who do you say that I am? And then reminds us, I was hungry and you gave me food, thirsty and you gave me drink, a stranger and you gave me welcome, naked you gave me clothing, ill and you gave me comfort, in prison and you visited me. To confess Jesus is, therefore, something we do not just with our lips, but with our love, as we choose to have among ourselves the same attitude Jesus did. We must lose ourselves to gain life. We must die to ourselves and allow God to raise us from the dead. We must unselfishly give ourselves for others. This is Christianity. This is the gospel. As we mark the 20th anniversary of the diabolical terrorist attacks of 9-11, pray for all those who died and their families who continue to mourn their loved ones absent. We also recall with admiration and gratitude all those who gave their lives trying to save others. The heroic first responders, the valiant passengers on United 93, the multitudes who lined up to give blood, the boat owners who formed a flotilla to rescue people from lower Manhattan, the soldiers who went to Afghanistan in the hunt for the terrorists to attack their capacity to recapitulate those horrors, and so many others who sacrificed so much. For me, living in New York, whenever I visit the 9-11 Museum, what always arrests me is the Ground Zero Cross, discovered in the ruins of Six World Trade Center, rescued, moved, and blessed by Franciscan Father Brian Jordan, and underneath the arms of which Father Jordan celebrated Mass for first responders, construction workers, family members of their victims, troops heading overseas, and others for 10 months. The Ground Zero Cross is far more than two pieces of perpendicular steel. Like Jesus' cross on Calvary, it's more than a reminder of enormous pain and suffering, but of hope, how God always seeks to bring good out of evil through suffering heroically and faithfully embraced. Pope Francis declared from within the 9-11 Museum in 2015, this place of death became a place of life too, a place of saved lives, a hymn to the triumph of life over the prophets of destruction and death, to goodness over evil, to reconciliation and unity over hatred and division, the heroism in response to terrorism, the good in response to evil, life in response to death, is the path in which Jesus calls us all when we confess who he really is and confess who we really are, who are so awesomely privileged to be called Christians, 
or little Christs? Who do you say that I am? So we prepare with all the church to confess Jesus as Messiah and Son of God on Sunday and to receive him within in Holy Communion. Let us ask him for the grace that in all our actions we may witness to him by the faithful, courageous way that we with him lose our lives to give them out of love for him and others. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 